Well, there are many ways to, uh, to gauge the effectiveness of a sermon, and one would have to be when people leave the church, rush home, and make substantial changes to their nativity scenes. <laughs> if you were here last week, you may, uh, you may recall that I did a sermon from an unusual place, Revelation 12, which is uh, this apocalyptic language that John writes in, and he describes... Uh, the birth of Jesus uh, in, in very vivid, symbolic ways. And we saw that this symbolic realism is describing spiritual realities that lie behind historical events. And part of the, that symbolism in Revelation uh, 12 is a giant red dragon who is right there in the manger scene, ready to devour the baby Jesus when he's born. So I just put it out there that of all the nativity scenes that I've seen, I've never seen a nativity scene with a giant red dragon. Well, in, in our church, that there's, we have the kind of people, they see that as a challenge, right? A personal <laughs> challenge. And I had not even really got done with third service, and I'm getting texts and Facebook's filling up with pictures of people that were, of course, doing just that. I thought I would show you a couple of the ones that, uh, that I saw. So. <laughs> now. These strike us as quite humorous because you don't normally see a dragon at a nativity scene, obviously. But that's the power of the language in, in Revelation and really apocalyptic language. It takes these symbols that are awkward and weird and at times preposterous and uses them to make the point that he's trying to make. And it creates these really uh, difficult Images. One, one, one of our campus pastors suggested that we should have named the series uh, Christmas at Jurassic Park to give you an idea of what we're doing here. And so uh, this language, it grabs the imagination, and, and as you read it, you almost struggle to visualize what John is describing, but that's the power of it, because by going through the imagination, it gets down to our hearts in a way that maybe the simple telling of the story uh, doesn't. So let's review what we saw last week, and then we're going to get into some new and fresh material today. So Revelation 12, we saw in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who is this woman? Well, she's described in these really grand images, right? She's standing on the sun, she's clo or the, on the moon, she's standing, or she's clothed with the, the sun. I got those backwards. Uh, so this is really a majestic woman. Who is she? And it was pointed out to me this week that there is not unanimity on the identity of who this woman is, but my take is that she is the true Israel of the Old Testament. She is the, the real messianic community that was anticipating faithfully the birth of the Messiah, longing for that, like a woman in agony, about to give birth, wanting for this child to be born. And the text says that she gives birth to a male son. And this child is easily identified. It's Jesus. He said that he will reign 
uh, over the nations with an iron scepter. He's going to rule over the world. Enter now into the story the dragon. This is the dragon that John identifies in verse 9 as Satan himself. And there, as the woman is about to give birth, it's not Mary, okay, but the imagery there, the woman is about to give birth to the Messiah, there the red dragon, Satan himself, is ready to devour the child, okay, to devour the child. But right before he can do that, God takes that child up to heaven, okay, whisks him away out of Satan's reach, or in this case, his teeth. And history, from the perspective of redemptive history, is... The story of Satan trying to devour the child, and we listed many of these last week as we see how over and over and over again, violence and evil done against Israel and and ultimately against God's people in the church, and so much of the story of history is that because Satan hates God. He hates God. He hates everything that reflects God. He hates God's people. He is completely evil, totally committed to destroying God in any way that he can. But ultimately, he can't hurt Christ. Christ has been taken away. He can try to hurt Christ's church, which is part of the story today. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we have these powerful images of a roaring lion, of a, of a serpent, of a dragon, vivid visuals of this enemy of God, Satan. And we left this last week in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now we think about going into the wilderness, that sounds terrible, right? But remember, for Israel, the time that they were in the wilderness was a time of God's provision and protection for them. He provided water out of the rock, manna to eat every day. He nourished them even as they rebelled against him. It was a time of wonders and miracles and he walks them across the Red Sea, things like this. So they would have looked at that kind of going into the wilderness differently than we would. And this is a theme that we're gonna get back to that God provides and protects his people. Because the passage before us today is basically more, it's, it's, a, it's a war story. Okay, so it's kind of a dude passage This is a story about warfare, and specifically Satan's two-front war, okay, two-front war. Maybe like if you think in World War II, the U.S., we had had the Nazis uh, to the east, and we had the Pacific War to the west. We were fighting a two-front war. This describes Satan as having a two-front war, and it begins with his war in heaven. Okay, listen to this, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This battle that we have described here is a war for the right to presence in heaven. Now we know this because in verse 8 it says, after his defeat there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And what we find here is that apparently in Genesis 3 when God curses Satan, that that curse, you know, to, to crawl on his belly and, and, and that 
promise that somebody was going to someday come and crush his head, that even after that curse, somehow Satan still had access to heaven. And he would go there, and specifically, he was the accuser of the brethren. He would point out God's people and their failures. Job is a great example of this. If you read the, the book of Job, Satan goes to heaven and, 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 and uh, tries to point out the failures of Job or why Job serves God. And the whole book of Job is really the story of a test of Job's character uh, between God and Satan, Satan accusing him and God uh, defending him. So this war breaks out in heaven. Dare I call it the real Star Wars. Had to work that in this weekend. Can't wait to see The Last Jedi tomorrow. So nobody tell me anything. I want no spoilers. Just don't go there, okay? This war takes place in the heavens, okay? So this is not so much like up. It's not like they're battling around Saturn or something. As in another dimension, that spiritual dimension, there is a war that takes place. And the chief warrior for God in this is named as Michael, or often Michael the archangel. And apparently Michael was an angel uniquely created by God as a warrior angel, he is the most powerful angel except Satan. There's an interesting passage in Jude where there, uh, uh, there was an argument over the body of Moses, and it says that even Michael dare not bring slander against Satan. Or we might say he, he didn't dare trash talk Satan, which gives you an idea that if Michael is the archangel and he does not want to mess with Satan, how glorious and powerful God made Satan to be. But here in this war now, Michael, Michael takes on Satan. And by the power of God and the other angels, they throw Satan, they expulse Satan and the demons from heaven. Or better to say it this way, they no longer had access to the throne of God. They no longer had access into that dimension of heaven. And they were cast, guess where? Here. They were cast down into the created order, the created realm. And the reason that's really bad news for us is that, the, if I could draw the comparison, this would be like uh, uh, limiting a great white shark to the swimming pool behind your house. And we're the little fishies swimming around in the swimming pool that remind the great white of the one who threw him out of the ocean in the first place. And that great white is mad. He is furious. And there he is in that very limited, confined space where he exerts ultimate, not ultimate, but he exerts a deputized authority. I kind of like that illustration. The great white and the right shark in the swimming pool. Okay. Trying. Now, we're going to come back to verses 10 through 12, okay? So here's what I want you to see. It's a two-front war, okay? It's a two-front war. But after Jesus' victory over Satan on the cross, heaven is lost to him. All he has is earth. All he has is this swimming pool to wage his war. And look at what heaven says about this in verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. 
I think this is describing Satan's presence and activity in this world right now. So who is heaven declaring a woe over? You and me. You and me. To live in a place where that dragon is mad and not only is his space now limited, his time is limited. He knows his time is short. If he's going to do damage, he has a very limited time to do it. So what does Satan do? Well, this is now his war on earth, okay? So the first front was heaven, now his war on earth. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon that, that, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Okay, apocalyptic, okay? That sounds really weird. Let me explain it to you. You're gonna get this. Like a wounded bear or boar, if you ever seen those like Facebook videos where hunters, they shoot, you know, they shoot a boar in Arkansas, but they, they only kind of wound it, and now what does the boar do? Goes right at him, right? Satan is like that now. He is mortally wounded. He knows that his time is short. He has one little space now where he exerts a kind of authority, and he thinks to himself, if I can't kill the child... I'm going to kill the mom. And the text says that he takes off now after uh, the woman. Okay? Now, I, I listed last week a number of things that, in my opinion, directly or indirectly, where Satan tried to destroy Israel or tried to destroy the church or destroy God's work, God's people. I'm not going to list them again. But the focus here is on Satan's pathological fury. Pathological fury against God and against his people, and then God's provision and protection of us. So that in the first example here, it says that God gives the woman wings like an eagle so she can fly away into the wilderness. Now, this is a repeat of verse 6. And it says that she is there for a time. Okay, a time is a year. So for a year, four times, which would be two years, and half a time, which would be six months. You add up that time, and that is the 1,260 days that you see listed here in verse 6. What is he talking about? Most likely, he is talking about the first half of what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, a time of terrible persecution, terrible events in the world and against God's people. But notice here that God's provision outwits Satan's attack. So if a dragon is after you, let me ask you this question, kids. If there's a dragon after you, you ever have this dream where there's a dragon chasing you? What would it be great to have in that moment when the dragon is about to eat you? I say wings like an eagle. Isn't that a great dream when all of a sudden you look and you realize, I can fly. And off you go and the dragon can't get you. Okay, And that's what it says here. God provides a way out, a way away from the enemy. The second example is, is grotesque. But I think it's easily understood. It says that Satan sees that she's flown away and he spews a river after her. Okay? Blah! Out comes the Mississippi River. After the woman. 
trying to drown her, to kill her. But the text says that supernaturally the earth opens up and the river doesn't get to the woman. Now who caused that to happen? God. What is this talking about? Satan is known as the father of lies. I think this is, it's coming out of his mouth. This is Satan in all of his heresies and all of his false teachings and the cults and the various distracting religions and truths that God's people can be led astray by. He spews all of that out. But God protects his people and their doctrinal purity by opening the earth to keep the false teaching from the woman. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan, he realizes, man, I can't catch her because she's got wings like an eagle. I can't drown her because the earth opens up. What am I going to do? I can't get her. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get her kids. And he goes off now, and notice how they are described. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who's that? That's us. That's you and me. You have a dragon that is after you. He is after your witness. He is after that Christian marriage. He is after your home. He is after your kids. He is after the testimony of your life before loved ones and neighbors. He is after you. He hates you. Don't think that Satan's like, you know, somehow maybe he'll be benevolent in the end. He hates God and he hates the church and he hates Christians. And he gave up on the woman, but now he's after us. Whatever good thing you see in your life, a good gift from God, Satan hates it, and he wants to destroy you. He was the dragon at the manger, and he is the same dragon at the dinner table. Now, this may sound depressing to you. Like, I came in here, I was sort of, you know, ignorantly, blissfully living my life, and now you're telling me there's a great white shark in the bathtub. I may never go home. And what you need to realize is that Revelation was written to seven churches that were struggling and Christians that were struggling. It's intended to be an encouragement. And there is an encouragement here, a really strong encouragement here, for Christians who feel like they are losing. How about a safe retreat, nourished and protected by God? How does that sound? How about wings like an eagle to be able to fly away from temptation and trials and suffering brought by the enemy? How about the very earth opening to protect you? And what we see here is that as powerful as Satan is, and he is incredibly powerful, he is no God. Okay? Satan is down here. God is up here. Satan wanted to be God. But there is only one God, and God is sovereign over Satan. Or as Luther said, the, the devil is God's devil. How true it is that 
All these things that he's doing, spewing rivers and all the hatred, trying to devour the child. In every case, God outwits him. He outpowers him. He demonstrates that he is God and Satan is not. Maybe think of the old hymn, This is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We live in a world that is dominated by Satan but ruled by God. Ruled by God. Christian, never forget that. So how do we overcome this? Okay, like we have this fury of Satan against us. He is waging war against us. How do we overcome it? And that's really the rest of the message here. And the first thing that we see here is that we must trust in the ultimate protection of God. And we see this in verse 6. Uh, we see it in verse 14, we see it in verse 16, that Satan, he's trying to devour, he's trying to drown us, and God gives us wings, he opens the earth, and these are symbols of God's power and his ability to protect his people. You will never be anywhere that you are out of the reach of God's protection. Satan's never going to find you in that back alley and like, oh, now I got you. Where's daddy now, huh? Not going to happen. He is always there. He is, he is everywhere, and he is committed to our salvation. Sometimes it's providences that God uses to protect us. Do you ever have those in your life where you're like, oh, wow, I, whew, that was a close call. I had no idea. Sometimes it's the word of God. When, when the Mississippi River is being spewn at me of false teaching, where God uses his word to protect my understanding of what the gospel is and what truth is. Sometimes it's a friend, a Christian friend. Sometimes it's a church. Sometimes it's a sermon like this one. He has so many means by which he can provide for us and protect us, and he always will. Listen to 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So get out of your mind a kind of dualism where there is a good and there is an evil and these two are like, you know, uh, co-equal but striving for dominance and you just have to try your very best to have the right force in you. Second reference. To something I'm going to see tomorrow. It's not that. It's God and everybody else. Okay? He is sovereign. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Okay. So, trust in that ultimate protection from God. Or you'll never go out your front door. <laughs> trust in the Lord. Secondly, we need to live in the already victory of Jesus. Okay? We need to live in the already victory of Jesus. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, notice how, by the blood of the Lamb. Okay, By the blood of the Lamb. I'm sure you've seen video like this, probably. If you, if you turn the TV on on a Sunday afternoon, you don't know what game's on, who's playing, but you turn the TV on. And the game's not done yet, but you can tell it's basically over. The camera pans the one sidelines, say it's a football game. And you can just look at the faces of the, of the players, you know, 
They got towels draped over them in shame at the loss. And they're standing there with their football helmets, you know, like, you know, kind of counting down the time. In other words, a normal Bears game. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they, they show the coaches and they're looking at each other like, you know, well, I don't know. You're like, hmm, I think I know what team I'm looking at here. And then they pan the other side, right? And it's the opposite. There the players are like, yeah, you know, and the coaches are going, yeah. And, you know, they got, uh, if it's a big game, they're pouring Gatorade on the coach. And you kind of look at that and you're like, okay, I think I can tell which team is winning and which team is losing. But wait a second, the game's not done yet. Well, yes, but there are a lot of games where even before the game is done, the victory is certain. Are you with me? Okay. Even before the game is done, the victory is certain. And those teams are reflecting, even before the game is done, what they believe will be the outcome, or what is already the outcome in some cases. You say, but wait a second, the game isn't over yet. But the certain victory energizes them even when it's not done yet. And isn't that what we see going on right here? Notice, now the salvation and power and kingdom authority of Christ have come. It's not saying, hey, by the time you get to the end of reading Revelation, it's going to be really great in the end. No, now the victory and now the kingdom and now the authority right now. You say, but wait a second, we're not to the end of Revelation. We're only in chapter 12. I mean, it's like many chapters until Jesus returns. It's like seven chapters until he comes back in chapter 19. How can we know in chapter 12 what the end is going to be? Because when Christ died in our place, there were no more accusations that Satan could go to heaven and accuse us of. Why? Because when Christ died in our place, he died for our guilt. He died for all the things that Satan could, Satan could accuse us for. But now we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. We are declared righteous by justification. We now have the very righteousness of Christ. Satan gets to heaven. He's got nothing to say against us anymore. Why? Because Christ gained the victory by the blood of the Lamb. That is atonement. He died in our place as the Lamb of God. And now we stand as righteous before God as Christ himself is righteous. We've gained the victory already. And Jesus shut up the mouth of Satan and we have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Okay? So the point is this, that the victory is already won. So we're on the sidelines of the team that is the victory team. The winning team. Now why is that important to understand? Because so often as you're living your life, it doesn't feel like you're winning. And so often in church life, it doesn't feel like we're winning. It feels like the enemy is winning. It feels like he is the one who is on the offense. And as a pastor, to see families and marriages and all these things struggling and just losing hope, like there's no way this is ever gonna work out good in the end. It's like we don't realize what the score is. If we did, wouldn't there be a little more sense of joy about us? 
A little more sort of like high-fiving. Maybe that's what we should end our service with. Forget the final song. Let's just have a massive high-fiving session. And not like play-acted because we are, we're on the winning side. Some of you, please inform your faces. <laughs> so many people go to church and they give off a sense that, you know, oh, it's all, the world's going to pot. Let's talk about politics. Oh, the world is going to pot. What's going to happen to us? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, talk about it, but don't talk about it as if you are not confident that in the end, we are on the victorious side, okay? Inform the face and the heart and joy. <laughs> and how do we do this? How do we show this? Well, and this ends on a very, this to me is the touching point of the whole message or the personal one for me. Verse 11, by fearless confidence towards the future. Look at what it says. And by, so notice the repetition. They conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Okay, so notice the repetition. Overcome by the blood of the lamb, that is the actual victory, and by the word of their testimony. This is the lived out victory. This is what we're to be doing. Okay, so we have not won, okay? We, we didn't do anything to gain this victory. And this, if I go back to the previous illustration, we're more like the fans in the stands in this, right? We are celebrating a victory that somebody else accomplished so that when they interview fans after the game and they say, how, what do you think about the turnout? What do they say? Like Cubs World Series, we won, we won. You know, half a million people in the square, we won. And you're like, no, you didn't do anything. Your beer and your brats do not count as a contribution. We are living out a victory that was accomplished by somebody else. And in this case, it is Jesus that has gained the victory. And by faith, that victory is our victory, which ought to give us optimism about the future. Notice, even when we are about to die. Here's verse 11 uh, in the New Living Translation. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. How do you know if you really get that Christ has already won the victory? When you hear the words, you have cancer, and it does not diminish your confidence about the future. When you watch your dear Christian loved one, their life ebb away without ultimate despair, but in faith that this is not the end for them. When our confidence in ultimate victory keeps us resolute and rejoicing, even when like the ultimate scary thing that can happen to a human being is maybe about to happen, when I am about to die, we overcome the shark in the pool and the dragon at the manger. Which brings us back to this male child who was born. Was his birth the victory? It was not the victory. 
but it signaled the beginning of the end of Satan's dominion in this world. And we call that moment Christmas. So the nativity of your heart rightly has shepherds, cow, animal, Joseph, but also must have a woman, a dragon, and a deliverer who is Christ the Lord. All praise be to him. Amen.